Welcome back. I am here again with one of our most popular guests, if not the most popular guest, Dr. David Morehouse. Dr. Morehouse, welcome back. Hi, Sean. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Sorry. All right. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna embarrass Dave a little bit because I, I've been digging around and there's this book from published in 1997 called Alien Agenda by Jim Mars. And I had it on my bookshelf for a very, very long time. And I forgot that Dave was actually interviewed in it several times. So there is one peculiar account in this book that is extremely interesting. I don't know how much of it is true, how much of it is embellished, you know, what what the history is behind it. But on page 322, so if you all want to get the book, I'll have the link down below. You can click on it and order it. It's still it's still in print. There's a, a section in a chapter called In the Mind's Eye, which is about remote viewing, UFOs, alien civilizations, etc. There's a section called Men from Mars. And in this section, there is a contention <clears throat> that there was an ancient Mar- Martian civilization millions of years ago that had a cataclysmic event, likely the same cataclysmic event that impacted the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, mm-hmm. where the you know that civilization had to go underground on Mars. And in pr- prior episodes, we talked about remote viewing, some of the things that you saw inside Olympus Mons as an example. But also there was a contingent that made it to earth and may at least according to some remote viewers have established a base or two or many bases beneath the surface now in this particular piece there are also a contention that the grays you know the the stereotypical gray et that we we all all see like the whitley streber kind of grays right helped helped kind of rescue them and then and then this is where it gets really, or you know, may maybe a little bit woo-woo. There's like a third group that may have been introduced called the Transcendentals, which are, according to this book, reportedly outside space and time, can alter what remote viewers see, etc. The final thing that's mentioned in this book, at least that's worth remembering or mentioning, is that these quote-unquote martians are still here they're a little bit annoyed the the characterization that some of the remote viewers have is that the remote viewers who view these individuals found them the most sympathetic because they describe them as akin to a soldier from a first world country in an underdeveloped country and really frustrated that the denizens of the the country or in this case planet earth are not managing it in a way that is you know intelligent and is they're kind of just screwing it up when these you know this race allegedly fled something that was completely out of their control like a cataclysm that was completely out of control whereas we're kind of causing our own cataclysm okay so that's a lot that's a lot to unpack I think you're quoted twice. One quote seems to me to be directly related to the work you did in Chaco Canyon in New right. Mexico. And I don't, you know, people can watch that episode to get more 
information on that. But there is one quote later on about this civilization that we're talking about. So it just says, I'm just going to read it. Asked if these Martians are trying to take over the earth, Morehouse replied, quote, we don't think so. If they're if that was their purpose, they could have done it years ago before we developed the technology to resist. I think they are biding their time, hoping that human consciousness will evolve enough to accept the idea of sharing the planet with them. I mean, look how the races of man can't get along. What would happen if everyone suddenly became aware that Martians were among us? No, I don't. I, I think we do. We have. I think we still have further to travel on the evolutionary scale, end quote. And that's on page 325. All right. So what say you? Well, first, you know, Jim Mars couches himself, uh, positions himself. He's passed away now. Uh, I'm sorry that, you know, he's not here. The world was a better place with him in it, I think. He was an investigative journalist, but he was also a really good storyteller. And I think that one of the things that he really perfected was the art of pulling together a lot of interview data from a lot of different sources and stitching it together into a story that was intriguing for people to read, much like what you just read there. I distinctly remember spending a lot of time with him at his farm uh, ranch or whatever he was calling it, and also time seeing him in New York and visiting with him when he was there for different reasons. And we talked often about the things that we did within the remote viewing unit. And I also know that he talked to Ed Dames a lot. I don't know how many other remote viewers he talked to about this kind of stuff, but what kind of shines through in the pages as I was listening to you, I had read the book, but I read it a long time ago. And whenever I, you know, would see things that I thought were like coming from a single source and not through multiple sources. So it wasn't really being, you know, analyzed and codified from a bunch of different people. It was just something that was coming up from one person and Jim was kind of running with it. Uh, I think the vast majority of what you're hearing there came from Ed Dames. I think, I mean, I know that my, my quotes that I gave him there were true. And I say that same thing now to people, you know, people running around with their hair on fire expecting that, you know, any knowledge of UFOs that, you know, the government's going to be forced to turn it all over and this and that and all those things uh, that which I will always say it's not going to happen. And I will also say to you that if there was all this UFO presence and, you know, that was there, then there would be, there shouldn't be any reason why they just wouldn't land right somewhere in the middle of a football stadium with 30,000 people there and pop out and go, check us out. That doesn't happen. And it's not happening for a reason. I don't doubt that they're out there and I don't doubt that they occasionally swoop down and maybe break down or, you know, interface on some level or pick somebody up and, you know, probe them and do other things to them because look around the world we're in and do we not pick everything up out of the ocean or a forest or anything else and do exactly the same kinds of things. So if they have the capability of interstellar travel, which I'm certain that they do, then yeah, they would do those things. They want to find out what species inhabits this planet, all of it. And so those things, I don't doubt at all. I can tell you that I know where the transcendental interpretation, that that was an Ed Dames interpretation. And it came from the fact that Ed and Mel Riley, I was part of that trio, but there was a lot of work that was being revealed that, that covered the idea that there were these alien bases underground. 
because there just was stuff that we found. Now, we, I don't know, to be perfectly honest with you, that we were not seeing something collectively being steered by our unconscious minds into what we were seeing under the earth and I mean, under the surface in Mars. Or were, and were we templating that through AOL to our reference of under the surface here? That could have been something that was happening. And we would have never known that. And, and we aren't going to know that until we actually put a manned mission to Mars on the ground and start looking under the surface there in those places where we suspect these civilizations may be, like in the lava tubes and those constructs, because mm -hmm. there, are, <clears throat> there are cavities there that are the size of the island of Manhattan. And they are, you know, there are relics of civilizations there. That, that have been seen by viewers, as much as that can be trusted without the feedback going on with it. I think the transcendental interpretation, albeit there is absolutely no evidence of it, we, we don't know. But if you remember in the chocolate story, we talked about the fact that we saw all sorts of things that were shooting from one portal and then disappearing into another portal. So the idea was that there may be in that transitioning through portal to portal, dimension to dimension, that not only are there craft, but there must be beings that are in those craft. And maybe those beings are in non-physical form. And maybe that's why they're able to do what we're seeing them do. But that's just a speculation. Right. I mean, based on our visual observation of it. And <clears throat> I don't think Mel or I ever, you know, came up with the idea of a transcendental. I think that was Ed Dames that came up with that. There is one thing that's worth mentioning. So mm -hmm. I did a prior interview with Lori Williams, who also knew Mel Riley pretty well. And then after Mel Riley left the unit, he was given a blind target. And what he observed was these, what they call these lava lamp beings, because they would just look like you know, like a lava lamp, right? You have the kind of this amorphous being that had kind of a turquoise-like color that was seemed to be outside of, or just in another dimension. It was just so alien. It was difficult for him to explain. Lori Williams was tasked on the same target independently, described the same thing, and she subsequently tasked her students, again, blindly, would see these people, and all she could say is they they exuded love, concern for the planet. When they were remote viewing Mars, there was a structure that they saw on Mars that looked like a, some sort of a transmission beacon. And when they when they were given the target, they said, "Trace trace the signal back to its source." And when they trace the signal back to the source, that's where they saw these beings. My guess is that. These are what they refer to the transcendental beings, but again, that's just a it's a supposition based on on logic. But I could be, you know, it could be something completely completely different. Yeah, I mean, and you're accurate there. It's supposition, and it, but it's flowing, you know, going from a logic flow. And we I could be doing with what Jim Mars is doing, frankly. <clears throat> right? It makes yeah. sense as a story, but it could be a completely different yeah. thing. And look. I, I think that all of these things are okay and I, to embrace, but we just have to be really careful about, you know, standing up and saying that it's all it's all real and there, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. But unfortunately, 
Whenever you do something like that, 50% of the room is going to turn around and take it for absolute truth and face value and then run out and start pitching it and talking it and carrying on with it. And we just don't, we can't do that. As a scientist, I don't do that. And I know you don't uh, as, you know, as a financial analyst and the things that you do, we can't do that. We can, we can make these suppositions and speculations and interpretations, and that's all a good, you know, physics is interpretations. The vast majority of it, particularly theoretical quantum mechanical physics, it's interpretations that can be different tomorrow. So I'm, I'm cool with looking at that stuff and hearing it and, and talking about it. I'm uncool with turning around and drawing a line and saying, this is it. Here's the answers. Because we don't know. We don't have feedback. So if you don't have feedback, you can't know how accurate your remote viewing sessions are or they are not. I can now, say. Now, so you certainly can't corroborate it. But when people are tasked with a similar target and they get similar results, what other logical fallacy is not the word, but what other analytical overlay type features can steer them off? Is it called telepathic overlay where they just, I, I, I don't, I don't there's know. Not, there's nothing in the ear in pure coordinate remote viewing called telepathic overlay, but you know, all kinds of things. And so it also depends on, that's one of the reasons why in the unit it was these these folders were kept for decades and they were used over and over and over and over again. Every time another new viewer would come in, you know, go back at it and do it again. And then maybe some of the older viewers would get up the team together now front loaded and do it again and again and again. And people were they were looking for corroborative data for parallels, patterns duplicate drawings, same kinds of verbal sensory data, same kinds of visual textural, you know, all those things. They were looking for all that stuff. And there were a number of people. Gabrielle was one of the ones that was probably better at it, who, uh, and maybe Fern was doing it as well, but Gabrielle certainly, she was really enamored of, of sitting down and, and starting to compile trending data and from different viewers over time to see what was there. So I don't, you know, I don't know what the magic formula is for when do you start, you know, increasing the level of expectant accuracy and data that's being de derived. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that statistically, you <clears throat> yeah. need 30 samples, you need 30, at least 30 samples. Now that presupposes that there is no other way for them to get this information that is not pure remote viewing. So like an analytical overlay, that's you know, something from your information Rolodex, there's also your imagination coming into play. Now you can rule out the imagination piece unless there's some human behavior where there's like the collective unconscious, you know, like the, something related to the, uh, hundred monkey resonance effect. is what it's called in the collective unconscious. Yeah. And that's a very real thing that, right. that plays a part in this, but even that as plays a lesser part than just whether or not it, you, you really have to look back to the system that's being employed to derive this data. Is it really blind? Is it really, you know, and is it mixed medium here? I mean, are, are some people doing, not doing remote viewing, but they're doing some other thing, you know, like a, so, I'm, so, I'm so a let's, natural clairvoyant, so I'm just going to do it and give you what I get. So let's presuppose, you know, just stepping back and just, Go back, going back to first principles, let's presuppose that independent people do a pure CRV remote viewing. Everything is done according to lab standard, you know, perfectly done, and they report 
the same thing or 30 people report the same thing about something that can't be corroborated. Now, let's say let's say they don't do it simultaneously. Let's say let's say one person does it first. And, and, you know, is there any way that that person doing it first without having any contact with anybody else could somehow corrupt or pollute the results of the others? They well, from a morphic from a morphic field standpoint, theoretically, yes. But it would seem to be minuscule in their ability to do that. But, yeah, it could be done. But if that person has done that. You know, has done the target and then has a, a notion as to what that target is, or they believe everything in their session to be accurate. And then that person turns around and sets up the next target for the next set of, let's say, coordinate remote viewers or extended remote viewers to do it. They, they that person it. cannot be pure in the establishment of the concept of the targets and the coordinates to be utilized. Yes, they can. They are polluting the water. They can. That's why being a program manager or being a person that sets up coordinates, I, I shared that story with you. There has to be a, you have to be trained and you have to be practiced to do it because if you don't you corrupt the session for everybody else. And I've seen it happen even in my classes, uh, just giving somebody, I wouldn't have done it, but people who were assisting me gave somebody who had no business doing it, doing it. And then that person you know, drove the entire class off out into nowhere. So we had to regroup and do it again, do the whole target again. That can happen. And it's why it's such a precise protocol, whether it's ERV or CRV, it has to be done carefully and it can't just be done willy nilly. But let's go back to your, you know, we presuppose all those things are being done correctly. Mm -hmm. And we're sticking with remote viewing and we're not mixing it up with whatever else might you know, want to join in because I'm opposed to that. I think if whatever else wants to join in, whatever it is, if it's a room full of clairvoyance or clairaudience or clairsentience, then let them do their thing together and see what comes out of that. And, you know, and then, you know, and analyze between the two different methodologies, but don't mix them up together and, you know, toss one in like, you know, like, the same lettuce in a salad, I guess. <laughs> Best analogy I can come up with right now. It's not, it's just not, it's not good science and it's not good practice. So if it's going to be purist and you're going to do a particular form, I would even, you know, I don't care if they're doing CRV or ERV in the same right. room <clears throat> because they're still both working off coordinates, the same coordinate, and they both understand an ERV person, performer, or, or remote viewer rather understands what a CRV remote viewer is doing they because they've been trained in CRV first then they go to ERV and it doesn't matter to me which you know who's doing it or how they're doing it they all find what they like best the, to work with for different reasons but that then as long as you're as you're saying you get some statistical viability based on the number of sessions or you know if you have 10 people doing three sessions and you've got 30 some odd sessions now and you throw a fourth one in for good measure, now the data that correlates and corroborates and trends, et cetera, it's good, reliable data. It was reliable data as far as the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA were concerned. It's good data and signal intelligence for the NSA, the same same kinds of things, right? So 
right? <clears throat> You're just pulling all of these different Intel collection methodologies and, and looking for the same kinds of trends and corroboration, et cetera. So yeah, that works. Uh, and you can look at that and I think you can have a high degree of trust as long as it's being done following a set protocol. When you start mixing up the methodologies of doing it, well, then it destroys the, the statistical viability because you're not using the same pool and you're not using the same methodology. You're trying different experiments and trying to see you know, what you can get out of it. That's how I see it from my science background anyway. But so I, I think that, again, going back to what I've seen and done as a remote viewer in the unit and with Ed and with Mel Riley, and certainly on occasion with Lynn Buchanan and Gabrielle, I have no doubt that those things are out there. I, I, I highly suspect that there are probably communities that are somewhere in cavernous portions of this earth that we would not even, you know, for us, we would say from a, you know, from a geological science perspective, they would say it can't happen past this, you know, past this depth, they'd right. burn up. But we're also talking about people that have mastered interstellar tra travel where we have not, right? So there's a lot of things that could be beneath the surface that we have no idea about. And you know, I wouldn't say that because of, you know, an oil well has not drilled through their, you know, through one of their the societies or something that we don't, you know, that's proof that it doesn't exist. I just, there are so many things that we are such an infantile state of understanding of the world and the universe and other things around us that I think it's quite egotistical to turn around and say that stuff can't possibly, you know, exist under any conditions. I also don't know if transcendentals, if that's the appropriate word for it. But right. I also assume that there are things that are interdimensional that, you know, stand outside the veil of this physical dimension and watch. I mean, if you have a belief in angels or demons or, you know, any of those kinds of things, then you have to understand that that would be the realm in which they would exist. Right. So certainly a lot are a lot of people that believe in those things. I know as a remote viewer that we have been able to, on occasion, you know, perceive these dimensional beings outside. Maybe not everybody in the same way that some of us have, but some of us have seen them and interacted with them and uh, had good experiences and, and bad experiences. And anyone that's ever felt the presence of something that has, you know, frightened them, but they can't see it, they can only feel it, they sense it. Well, they're usually there's a reason for it. I mean, your, your radar is not coming up and the hair standing on the back of your neck because necessarily you're thinking it, you're feeling it. You're, you know, you're sensing that it's out there and it is that just on the other side that there's good and evil as we define it as human beings, there's positive and negative and everything in between and, and degrees of both extremes. They are out there. I just had a, I had a random thought. There's a, <clears throat> A science, well, a kind of a weird fiction author, kind of early 20th century. His name is uh, Algernon Blackwood, and he has a story called The Willows. And it's basically, I mean, it's 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 100% fiction, but it's based it's based on that concept of being terrified by some being that you can't, or a group of beings that you can't, you know, directly see, but they're there, and you know they're there. And they might not be able to necessarily see you, at least in, I don't know about in the real world, but in the in the story, unless you kind of alerted them in some way. 
they weren't necessarily able to find the the protagonist. So anyway, going no, back I'm, to I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, I've had yeah. you know, I've had episodes in my life where I've, you know, encountered that stuff. So I mean, uh, I you know, as you know, I'm not a religious person per se anymore, but I can certainly tell you that even without a formal religious background, that I have encountered evil before, you know, long before I ever had a religious, you know, direction in my life that I had enc- I encountered evil. And, and there it exists. There is both, as I said, there's good and evil and there's positive and negative. They're all out there. And well, you can't have good if you don't have the contrast of evil. You can't exactly. have light without the you contrast have of dark. Right if you don't understand darkness and vice versa, right? And that's simplistically put, but it's that's it's it's truly put. So I have no doubt that there are, you know, that there are these transcendental beings. I don't know that they're aliens, but I why would there not be? Right. <clears throat> uh, and I, you know, grays. Okay, I mean, I I've told you before, I never saw one. I never even saw one as a remote viewer. But I know Ron Blackburn. I don't know if he's still alive today, but Ron Blackburn was, uh, you know, a PhD researcher at uh, Lawrence Livermore Air Force Base. And he was one of my remote viewing students. In fact, he went all the way through Explorer class with me. And he was not shy about, you know, coming up to me and saying, you know, I've been in the in the lab when they dissected a gray. (laughs) Now. okay, I mean, I, I don't have any reason to believe that you know, that a PhD, Dr. Blackburn would make that shit up. <laughs> just don't, I don't have what was any. He, what was his first name again? Ron, Ron Blackburn. Ron Blackburn. Okay. I, you know, I first met him with Jacques Vallée. There was Ed and, and uh, Mel and I, and we were at the Abiquiu Inn in New Mexico, getting ready to do the Chaco journey, right? Uh-huh. We just didn't know that yet. And we walked over to this one particular place because I don't know, vantage point or something, but how we got attracted, we found each other in the darkness, but we did. And uh, Jacques Delot was standing there with Ron Blackburn and Blackburn, Ron had all of this high speed, high speed G whiz gear that he was like, you know, he was tracking anomalous activity, measuring it. So he was actually measuring anomalous activity. He was always a really smart guy, and he was always, in my opinion, you know, well-grounded, but not shy about saying some of these things about aliens at all. So I I never got excited when he would say that. I mean, it's not like I would start hopping around, you know, one foot or something, but it was always interesting to hear him say that. It was interesting to hear a PhD from Lawrence Livermore, you know, working there at whatever lab he was in, to say that he had seen, touched and you know, observed an, you know, a dissection of a of a deceased. You know, so, great so, so is, that, is that the national? Is that the uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab out by me, like in Tracy, California, near that? Yeah, yeah, outside. Okay. Yeah. Not, it's it, it, right at the end of that pass that goes through with all those ugly windmills and generators that goes to San Francisco and you know Hayward, Oakland, all that. Altamont. Altamont yeah, that pass. pass. I, I don't remember yeah. it, I, although. I was at Lawrence Livermore when I, you know, when I was in the second grade and deemed dyslexic. My father used to take me there. That's where I actually got my training to, you know, be able to read. <laughs> was there? There was a major that was part of kind of leading this program, and in leading that program, he had they had airmen 
who somehow got into the Air Force, but really couldn't read. They were grossly dyslexic, as was I. And they were at Lawrence Livermore. And this guy had this groundbreaking, you know, methodology for helping dyslexics. And I was just a, in second grade. I remember how, how, how old I was, but I, yeah, I mean, I was in, I was in hobnobbing around in the same place with all of these airmen, which I, I don't know if, if it scared me or made me feel great, but it, it certainly was a good place to learn. And I was really grateful for that, as was my father. But there's a lot of research that goes on there. I think there's some propulsion research that's going on there. I think there's other, you know, biometrics and other stuff that's going on there. And he, you know, he was there for a very, very long time in, in whatever capacity he was in there. And I really liked Ron. And like I said, he, he never gave me any reason to have pause about anything that he said. I just wasn't the kind of guy that was self-aggrandizing or trying to stand up and, you know, and make people look at him and say, oh, really? You know, tell us more about that. He was always kind of down on the down low about it, but he was not shy about saying it to anybody. If, if there were people standing in a circle, you know, at a break during class he would, and the topic came up, he would say it, that I, I've seen and touched one. I know that they exist kind of thing. So, you know, golly <laughs> sake, I, I wish I could have been there and seen that because that would Did be you some... see where they got it? No. And I, he may have known, but I didn't ask. And I, I didn't ask because, you know, I was, it, at the time, I was really driven toward just teaching remote viewing. And I wasn't really uh, enamored of, like, chasing down rabbit holes on stuff like that. Because I knew that I was not going to get there to see it. And I knew that he wasn't going to take a photograph of it and bring it to me. So I would hear it and, and I would, you know, give him a hug and, and I'd go back to teaching class again. And I know there were a lot of people that pried into his brain for more information, but I just never pursued it. Well, plus you probably, there are probably other students who, <clears throat> you know, who told you stories that were just, you know, Off like, I, yeah, yeah had, they, they took all my teeth and, you know, didn't give it back. Or, that was a classic, was, right? Yeah. yeah, I know that wasn't in one of your classes, but. I'm just, you know, so for instance, yeah. so, so I've always been really cautious about that, but I, but again, I don't distrust him and what he said, I, I never would have distrusted it. And he was in class with Rob, Colonel Robert Frank, who was also at Lawrence Livermore. And this is a guy that was one of my students in San, in San Francisco at the veterans building in San Francisco. And Robert passed away, I think two years ago now in Las Vegas, but he was another one of these guys. He was a he was a, an Air Force computer guru, and so not a pilot, but was was selected for promotion three times below the zone. That's how big his brain was. So to get selected one time below the zone as an Air Force officer and not be a pilot is unusual, from what I hear. To do it three times like major lieutenant colonel and colonel is pretty phenomenal. And Robert was always supportive of Blackburn, of Ron Blackburn, because they both came from the same place, basically. I don't know if they ever met each other there, but they both retired in Las Vegas when they retired. And I talked to Ron about Robert there many times just to catch up with them, you know, because I would have breakfast or lunch with Robert, you know, Colonel Frank a lot, both really just smart guys and very matter of fact. And 
not individuals prone to embellish anything for any reason whatsoever. These guys were real patriots and deep thinkers, and they were really good at what they did. And they were both good remote viewers, although they were always self-effacing and, you know, very humble about what they did. But they both had scientific analytical minds and they followed the protocol and they did well. And, you know, I was always proud of them. And, you know, they participated in a lot of, you know, extracurricular things that we did. And I was always honored to have them around there. So if Ron Blackburn said he touched a gray and Colonel Frank didn't turn around and go all BS, you know, kind of thing. They, there was a mutual respect of uh, profession there. And as I said, both super intelligent men and both of them not prone to embellishing of anything. So I had never any reason to doubt what Ron Blackburn said. So it means then that somewhere there is proof of alien life, the physical proof of alien life. And, you know, are we ever going to get to see that? I don't know. I guess somebody will have to decide if there's a purpose behind that. And that purpose will not be just to quell the interest of the public at large. That just won't happen. Have you heard Lynn Buchanan's story? <clears throat> no. So I, I'll I'll show you afterwards. But there's he he had a re recall of an abduction experience he had twenty years hence, and I think part of it was triggered by you know once he started working in the remote viewing unit, he had an incident where he raised. In fact, it's in the it's recounted in the same book, by the way. And you know, folks can watch that episode when I interviewed him. Yeah. But he, you know, it took him a while to recall, but apparently he assigned that target, you know, blind as he was supposed to, to other remote viewers in the unit because he wasn't, he wasn't sure if the memory was a real memory. And they all kind of reported the same experience. And then to just really confirm it, he went to a hypnotherapist, didn't tell him, you know, what he was trying to remember but went through and recalled it that way. So then the, I think the fourth way that he was able to confirm it was on the seventh floor at DIA headquarters, he was interviewed by two interrogators. They just kind of pulled him out of the lineup and they started asking him questions about <clears throat> his experience. So his first, you know, his first reaction was, oh, they're trying to see if I'm crazy so they can, you know, declare me Section 8, send me out, right? And they were more concerned with how the, the craft flew. And so he just said, you know, after kind of they kept asking him the same questions, he's like, all right, look, here's how it works. <laughs> Started explaining it. And he said one of the interrogators who's supposed to remain completely impassive smiled. And he and he said, tapped his knee and said, I knew it. I knew it. And the other interrogator got pissed off because you're not supposed to show any emotion. So, you know, the natural conclusion of that is we have one of these things. So I didn't say that, but it seemed really, really you know, really odd. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it would be given the amount of activity that you see or hear about that it would be unusual for us not to have some example of that. In other words, if you've got a dead gray or multiple dead grays, then you have to have whatever they showed up in, right? right? Unless it vaporized. And if it vaporized, they would have vaporized as well. 
So it has to be around somewhere. But again, it goes back to this for me. And I know people hate this about me, but I, for me, that's like, so what, you know, it, I, I, so I hope that we're able to reverse engineer it and do something, you know, to develop that kind of power source, whether it's fission fusion, because this whole battery operated world that we're in right now is just a joke. And it, that it's just crazy. You drive a regular car for 23 years for what it costs in a carbon footprint to make one freaking Tesla. And everybody's like running around wanting to buy Teslas. Battery's not going to last till I'm telling you, it's going to be gone in 20 years because, you know, ITARs or somebody's going to come up with this fission fusion, you know, perpetual energy capability. And that's what's going to power our spacecraft and, you know, all the other things. That's what's happening. And I hope that they reverse engineer or figure out how to reverse engineer these craft and the propulsion systems in these craft, because, you know, that's the kind of thing that's going to power the world. It's not going to be what we're doing. It's not going to be wind or solar or anything else like that. That's just, yeah, I think, I mean, again, I haven't been researching this area for until only until very recently, but you know, my view has always been where there's smoke, there's fire. The question is, is there's, there's a lot of garbage surrounding it too, like a lot of just nonsense. And it's it's sometimes difficult <clears throat> to separate the wheat from the from the chaff, right? What are you talking about, John? Are you talking about just the whole thing around the salient technology or you know, held technology kind of thing? Yeah, I agree with you. It's the problem that's the whole problem with the community around that is that they they're willing to chase any rabbit mechanical or otherwise and every time somebody steps up and says something there is no there's no analysis or vetting of it they will just accept it you know fit wholly and their entire lives get wrapped around it and that's and and the skeptics are the same way right so as an example just as bad yeah yeah if you look at the uap (laughs) videos right i think one of the explanations was oh those are hypersonic drones from china sure really that's that's more terrifying than ufos <laughs> yeah. right like is that where you're going to go with because that's what you're going to go with we're like we're done we might as well start learning mandarin like that's 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 the thing i don't understand with some of these things like so i think like we certainly know something the question is is i could come mm. up you know again i write science fiction so i could come up with a hundred different variations of this story from the we know nothing angle we don't have anything but they're there we just can't explain it right that's kind of the simple at the very least it is that right there's no other it's not it's not it's not these are just anomalous things and we don't you know we're we're just misclassifying them we just yeah and i don't believe that and yeah and and i also want to say this about science fiction writers is I think that science fiction writers are tapping into something in the unconscious mind that allows them to see actual craft and places and technologies. I'm a firm believer in that. In fact, I used to do that in a, in the Explorer class for my students, which was, you know, the, the concept of the target would be to, for them to, it was an open search outward to run into something and bring technology back. And then all of these, 
you know, we had modeling clay and, you know, Legos and you name it, right? Anything that you could give a small child to make something out of. And they, they would have to actually assemble this technology that they had observed in their remote viewing session. And then they would have to, in the, in the large group or the small group, they would, they would have to explain what it was and how it worked and what it did. Now, do I think that every piece of information that came back from that was, you know, valid information? No, but I, and I have no way to evaluate that, but like science fiction writers, I think that you're tapping into something. I mean, because if you look back on science fiction that was written 50 years ago, 60 years ago, much, if not all of it is true all today. It's part of our life, you know? It's it, the technology has now been incorporated into our life. So, did that science fiction writer plant something in the head of a dreamer or an you know an imaginarian who then turned around and you know made it real, or did this science fiction writer tap into something that was real in another place, far away, distant in space time, you know, evident only in the waveform expression of itself in the holographic matrix field? Did they tap into that? incorporate it into a story and maybe embellish it with a little analytical overlay, but then that technology actually shows up in our future. So did they influence that or did they see it and just, you know, make a prediction of what was going to be there? Interesting, you know, conundrum when you're looking at that, I mean, in terms of thinking about it, but I think both, and I think all of, of that is true. Right. And well, I, since time, time is it. simultaneous. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. Um, that's, by, by the way, incidentally, Lori Williams, some of her clients, a lot of her clients are historical fiction writers <laughs> who use remote viewing to get details that they would not ordinarily be able to get. And, you know, if it's if it's real, great. If it's not, you know, if there's analytical overlay, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just it's historical fiction, but it is a technique that they use to at least get a little bit more verisimilitude in their writing. Well, I don't know, like, you know, years ago before the, shortly after the war started, I guess, maybe about in 2002, I took a, a group of people uh, to Oslo, Norway, because I was invited to be there for the Norwegian Film Institute. They had a whole bunch of screenwriters and the whole class was filled with screenwriters, maybe 20, I guess not enormous, but guys that were and gals that were really focused and they were looking for something. Norwegian Film Institute wanted to start making more creative, interesting films, fiction, right, et cetera. But they seemed to be against the collective Norwegian writer's block. So they actually wanted to see whether or not remote viewing could be used to help them step into a story and as a remote viewer, began detecting and coding and objectifying elements of that story that can then be brought out and wrapped around back in to be, you know, part of the storyline and the screenplay they needed in order to develop, you know, one page to equal one minute of screen time. They needed to have all the details in their mind to help them create that in their mind and create that dialogue to fit what was there and what was going on. And they were having a tough time doing it, which as a writer, I can understand that too, but I thought it was an ingenious use of remote viewing. Modified, it did not teach coordinate remote viewing or extended remote viewing, actually taught a brand of thought incubation, which we're going to talk about again. Uh, there'll be an episode on that, I guess, for you and I. 
<clears throat> but yeah, that was an application of that. And I, I think that's a grand application of it, right? So absolutely. All right. So going back to the original <laughs> premise of the episode. Martian. So can... Martian. Yes. So what is your take on given all the remote viewing sessions that you you have you've had? Is is it a possibility that there's some remnants here? Or is it I, I don't see why not? I I the civilization that was perceived and described by remote viewers on Mars was not a civilization that is, is as underdeveloped as we are. As sophisticated as we might think we are, they were far more sophisticated, more far more developed, far more technologically sound, far more evolved as beings, it appears. But the idea that a di- dinosaur world-ending event, that again, as I, I believe in interpretation that came from Ed Dames, Ed, among other things, you know, had a big interest in, in geology and astrology and those kinds of things. And so sometimes those things would get stitched together as just descriptions, right? He was trying to say, this is what we think it, this could be. And he, it doesn't mean he's wrong. It just means I know where that came from, just hearing it. It, it is. It, it, could they be around and amongst us? And is there a connection between here and there? I definitely believe there's a connection between here and there. And I understand why there would not be a connection on the moon. The moon is essentially a dead planet, lots of minerals and other things that they can extract from that place. But whenever they get up there to do that and mine it, which I'm surprised it hadn't started to happen yet, it offers far less than Mars did and when Mars was viable and alive. And the Earth has always, I think, offered a great deal of life or life potential. And I don't understand in any way, shape, or form why they would not have been capable from going from there to here. I mean, we're now getting ready to go from here to there. So the idea that they would not have colonized both places, to me, doesn't pass the logic stream, right? It's it, it, Of course they would have. I mean, if they were there, they could look back here. And if they were as advanced as we believe they were, then the idea that you wouldn't be here to colonize something, or if that planet was dying to send something here, why they wouldn't have just intermingled and bred, you know, interbred with the humans that were here as, as a species. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe uh, they did. Maybe, maybe they, they did. did. Yeah, maybe they did. We would not know the difference, would we? We would not know the difference. Yeah. So perhaps that did happen. And perhaps that's why, you know, there was this sudden leap in transition from Neanderthal, you know, that kind of thing into a more modernized species with higher levels of thinking and tool making and, of course, worrying <laughs> that started to show up. Right. Speaking of which, have you ever done 23andMe where you got your genome mapped? And it sounds mm-hmm. like you have this. Have you? Yeah. <clears throat> Do you, is there is there a section called other on that report? Yeah, but I always took that to mean like indeterminate geographical location you know, for a species, usually meant meaning that, it, you know, it might have come out of North Africa or something like that, maybe in the Middle East or something. Okay, so 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 hear me out. And I, I don't I'm not going to attribute it on the call. I will I will tell you afterward. OK, yeah. yeah. Here's what I heard about that. The company does not know. What is in that other category? They have no idea. 
and there is someone that they're you know there, there is someone or some agency in the government that is very interested in identifying what that is the company doesn't know it's it's it is it is part that part of the genome is untraceable I just put that 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 down as a research topic for me. Follow, yeah, follow, definitely follow. Thank you very up. much. I'll spend the next five days trying to figure out what that means. So, you know, yeah, thanks for yeah, the nightmare. So. Yeah. I was always just cool with the fact that it just meant that they couldn't figure out a geographical location for the origin of that particular genome. But okay, so yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean that is true, but <clears throat> they don't like they can't they can't trace it to any yeah. anywhere. Yeah. It'd be subsurface. Could be yeah, subsurface, or, right? Or any of the know. other things we've been talking about. Hey, you know, I'm I'm open to the fascination of it, perhaps not the reality of it, but I'm open to you know looking at it and and giving it good thought and good discussion. Really, I mean, I am. I mean, I I think that I'm very curious about that now. Yeah, yeah. or it just could be a technical deficiency, right? <laughs> Who knows, right? Yeah, perhaps. I yeah. Well, All right, I'll I'll uh, I'll end it. On that note, tantalizing note, so that people can call all the people that they you, you, you know that work at Twenty Three and Me. And uh, I, by the way, I used to work with somebody, and this is not where that that came from. Who had worked at Twenty Three and Me, but she's a lawyer, so she probably wouldn't say anything anyway. So that's definitely in the other category. Yeah, Lawyers. exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. All right, thank you very much, my friend, and I look forward to speaking with you on a future episode. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Sean. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.